This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mary Camario. I'm professor in the Graduate School in Architecture and the chair of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We are pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Jeff Hawkins, this year's speaker, in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we are obligated and happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways this campus is linked to the history of California and the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the gold rush where he opened a thriving private practice. In 1885, Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley, an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish the professorship at UC Berkeley, making it possible for us to present a series of lectures, this very long and wonderful series which we have had for many years. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles. And now a few words about Jeff Hawkins. Jeff Hawkins has a multifaceted career as an inventor, engineer, neuroscientist, author, entrepreneur. In his book on intelligence, he describes his life as as animated by two passions, mobile computing and neuroscience. As the founder of Palm and Handspring, Hawkins was at the forefront of mobile computing and developed landmark products like the Palm Pilot and Trio smartphone. His lifelong interest in neuroscience led him to UC Berkeley as a graduate student in integrative biology and to found the Redwood Neuroscience Institute, aimed at understanding how the neocortex processes information. In 2005, Hawkins gifted the Redwood Neuroscience Institute to UC Berkeley, where it now exists as the Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience. His latest company, Numenta, brings his two passions together. At Numenta, Hawkins is developing new computer technologies modeled on the workings of the neocortex. This approach, hierarchical temporal memory, allows machines to extract patterns from complex data streams and predict what is likely to occur. The company's latest product is Grok, a cloud-based engine that makes predictions from streaming data. 
Hawkins hopes that Numetra will play a catalytic role in the emerging fields of machine intelligence. Hawkins received a BS in electrical engineering from Cornell University in 1979. He came to UC Berkeley as a graduate student in integrative biology in 1986. In 1988, he returned to the computing community, ultimately to found Palm Computing, and then continued deep engagement with neuroscience through the Redwood Neuroscience Institute. The institute was aimed at developing a theoretical framework for the thalamocortical system and fostered a vibrant intellectual atmosphere among researchers, postdocs, and students. Hawkins' account of the neocortex on intelligence was published in 2005 to critical acclaim. Hawkins was elected to the National Academy of Engineering in 2003. Please join me in a warm welcome for Jeff Hawkins. Thank you, Mary. Oops, it's trade places here. So hopefully uh, this microphone's okay? Not too loud? Great. Thank you, Mary, for that lovely introduction. Um, and uh, it's a real honor to be here. Uh, this is a very distinguished uh, lecture series and uh, goes back for many years. And, uh, and it's, a treasure, it's a pleasure, and I've been looking forward to it all year, to being here. Um, so I'm going to give two talks uh, today and tomorrow all about intelligence. Today is intelligence in the brain, and um, tomorrow, intelligence in machines. Uh, Mary told a little bit of my story um, already, which I was going to introduce here, about how I, how I came to be on this stage. Um, and uh, so I won't go through that all again, but um, I'll tell you a little bit more flavor about the time I was here as a graduate student at Berkeley. This was, uh, it goes back to actually 1979, when I just came out of an undergraduate, uh, got my undergraduate degree, and I had read the September 79 issue of Scientific American, which was a single topic issue on the brain. And there were stories by many, many famous neuroscientists, Eric Kandel, uh, Hubel and Wiesel, et cetera. And the very last um, article was by Francis Crick of DNA fame. And Francis wrote, he said, this is all well and good. We have all this data about the brain. We know all this about the neuroscience and the neurons and the diseases of the brain and so on. He says, but don't be mistaken. We have no idea what the hell's going on up there. And, and he says, what we're, what we're lacking is a theoretical framework. And, and this excited me. It was like, oh my gosh, we have all this data about the brain, but we really don't understand what's going on, how it works. We need a theoretical foundation for it. And I said, this is something we should be able to do in my lifetime. It's something I want to work on. And I basically dedicated my career to that at that point in time. And uh, my first attempt was at MIT, where I uh, tried to become a graduate student there in the AI lab. And they asked me, uh, they said, well, they said, why are you here? And I said, well, I want to build intelligent machines. And they said, that's great. We do, too. And then I said, but I want to study brains first to see how they work. And they said, oh, that's stupid. Why would you do that? A brain is just a messy computer, and why would you study a messy computer when you can study good ones? So I didn't get into MIT, and that's why I snuck into Berkeley, because Berkeley, I said, oh, I'll just go in as a biology person. They won't know the difference. And, um, so I got in, and it was actually the biophysics program, but it didn't really matter. There was no theoretical neuroscience back then. And uh, at that time, my first six months here, I took classes. I took Jeffrey Weiner's anatomy class, which was great. I read Candell's book twice, end to end. Um, and I wrote a long uh, thesis proposal about what I wanted to do as a graduate student. And uh, Professor Frank Werblin, who was very kind and head of the chairman, it was the chairman of graduate uh, neurobiology at the time, he read it and he had some other faculty read it and he said, this is really good. In fact, it's a proposal of what I'm going to tell you about in my talk. And he said, uh, he says, unfortunately, you can't do this here. 
I go, what do you mean? I just got all this effort to come here as a student. He said, well, no one's doing this. No faculty is working on models of neocortex from a theoretical point of view. In fact, he says, I don't know anyone in the world doing this. This is in 1986. And, and he said, as a graduate student, you've got to work for somebody in somebody's lab, and there's nobody doing what you want to do. So I was really kind of bummed out. And um, so what I ended up doing after six months of, of being a regular student, I took the next year. And for a course of a year, I would come to Berkeley. I kept my student status. I'd come to Berkeley once a week because I wanted to read papers. And you couldn't, there was no internet back then. And you, to read papers, you had to go to university library. So every week, I would come to Berkeley with a list of papers I want to read. I had to visit multiple libraries on the campus. I'd go look at these papers. I'd photocopy the ones that were interesting to me. I'd come back home, read them over the course of the next week, come back the next week with a set of other papers I wanted to do. And I did this for about a year. And it was a, it was a very uh, great uh, knowledge-gaining exercise about the history of neuroscience. I could study whatever I wanted. But eventually, I had to uh, make a living. And I couldn't do that forever. So that's why I went back to work, which I thought was going to be for four years, but it turned out to be for about 16 years, uh, because I had a very fortunate success in my business life. And finally, I was able to extricate myself. Um, and I want to tell you one more thing. When I started the Redwood Neuroscience Institute, this is a crazy idea. How do you start a new science institute? Who's going to come up? Who's going to show up? Who's going to be the first one there? Um, I said, it was not even my idea. Some neuroscientist friends of mine said, why don't you start this institute? That's what's required. And I said, well, I can't do that. I said, well, you, if you help me, I'll do it. And um, one of the people who helped me was Christoph Koch. Another one was Bob Knight at Berkeley. And I talked to Bob, who's head of the Helen Wills Neuroscience Institute at the time. I said, Bob, would you help me do this? He goes, sure. We need a theoretical component here. And so um, uh, from the very beginning, there was a close association between the Redwood Neuroscience Institute and Berkeley. That's a little bit ironic, because the Redwood Neuroscience Institute was located right next to Stanford. And they didn't want to really do much with us at all. But Berkeley was very opening. So we came up, and we did some classes, and we exchanged students and so on. So from the very beginning, it was a good co collaboration. And when it came time for me to start my own lab and my own business at Nementa, we had to decide what to do with the Neuroscience Institute. Moving it to Berkeley made a lot of sense. And uh, Bruno Olshausen, who's here, uh, was the, the, the head guy who was helping me out at R&I, and he's now a faculty here at Berkeley. So the long story, here I am, 30 years into it. I've been working on this for a long time. So uh, we're going to just jump into it. Um, this is the. Um, this is uh, Francis Crick's words. This is what exactly he wrote. What is conspicuously lacking is a broad framework of ideas in which to interpret these results. The results he was talking about were the empirical results of neuroscience. He said, look, lots of data, no theory. And this is what I've been working on, and I want to tell you about the progress we've made on this so far. I set out two questions I wanted to solve. One was, what are the operating principles of the neocortex? What, uh, you know, what are the, the theory behind it? It's not like an equation or something like that, but there's a set of principles. I also realized that once we had those principles, we would be able to build systems that work on those principles. And we'd be able to build machines that exhibit the same principles as the neocortex. And so they, those two came hand in hand, and they, they complemented each other. The way I go about this is the following. You start with the brain, and we start with anatomy and physiology. These are constraints on the problem. We know a tremendous amount of how the brain organized and wired and so on. These are not things you can ignore. If we want to understand the principles of intelligence, you need to have to be copacetic with those, uh, those brain principles. And so this, I took the serious, as a very serious as to getting totally in bed with the anatomy and physiology and histology of the brain. Then once you understand the principles and you can elaborate them, you can model it. And you can first do that in software, which is what we're doing today. I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow. And then ultimately, you can do it in hardware. And we have conversations with people trying to build this stuff uh, today. So, this is the basic premise. My today's talk is going to start with the anatomy and physiology and talk about the theoretical principles. 
Tomorrow, I'm going to start with the theoretical principles and talk about how we build this stuff and where is it going. So let's start with the brain again. That's a, it's a little bit more visible here. Um, we're going to start a little bit of a history about the brain. You know, if you go back in the beginning when people were really trying to figure out how the organs of the body work, people would take tissue and they look at it under a microscope. And everywhere you looked, if you looked at uh, you know, a liver or a kidney or a muscle, you would see cells. And there's like looking at peas in a bowl. They're all there lined up under a microscope. But when you looked at the brain, it didn't look like that. It looked like a bowl of micro spaghetti. And it was not clear in the late 1800s that the, actually the brain was made of separate cells. This was a question. And uh, many people thought it wasn't. They thought it was some sort of magic tubular mess of jelly or something like that. And, um, and it was one of the most famous neuroscientists of all time, uh, uh, Santiago Ramon y Cajal. And every neuroscientist knows this guy. He's like the, 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 the king of neuroscientists. He was a Spanish uh, guy. He basically mapped out the entire nervous system for many species. Cajal came along with a new technique that he, just, he didn't discover, but he was exploiting uh, for staining cells, where you could stain completely a cell and see what it looked like. And when he did that, he, uh, he started making these wonderful pictures. Here's one of Cajal's pictures on the right here of a, of a classic neuron in the neocortex. And what he showed was that actually the brain is made of individual cells. Even though they branch all over the place and they look like they connect, they don't. The cytoplasm doesn't go between, and it's just like tissue like everywhere else in the brain. Now, this has become known as the, the neuron doctrine. It's the founding principle of which uh, all neuroscience is based, is essentially that the brain is made of a bunch of cells. A corollary to that, which is not often stated, but we should just get it out of the way, is the brain is not made of anything else. There's no magic pixie dust in there. It's just a bunch of cells. And if we want to understand intelligence, we need to understand how the cells interact and what they do. Uh, there's no room for a mind that's separate from the brain. There's no room for a mind that can do extra-textual communications and things like that. So until we have proof otherwise, until we've illuminated every other possibility, we have to think of everything the mind does, everything our, you know, we think of as our humanity is a bunch of cells doing this in our head. Okay, now already you can see on this picture that these cells are very unusual. They have uh, a cell body, which is fairly small in that picture, and they have these branching arborizations called dendrites, and the connections to the cell where it receives information is all arrayed on those dendrites. They're, they're not even on the cell body, at least not the excitatory ones. A typical neuron has several thousand of these connections arranged along the dendrite. This is a very complex uh, system, and uh, lots of inputs. The... Um, there's another part of the, of the neuron, which I'm going to add to the picture right now, which is the axon. This is the output of the neuron, and it's a single fiber which, where the spikes from the neuron go out to other cells. And you can see here, the first thing is that the, the axon um, spreads locally and makes connections to lots of other cells nearby, uh, thousands of them typically. And those connections are very interesting. They don't connect back to the original cell. They don't connect many to any particular cell. A particular other cell may get one or two of these guys, and most cells don't get a connection at all. So it's very densely packed in there. And, uh, but this, we make a lot of connections locally. Then the axon typically, as shown in this picture, continues on and goes someplace else and makes more connections. So it makes a lot of connections locally, and then it goes elsewhere. It makes other connections. And this is the, the, the basic idea of what neurons look like in the brain. Um, we have somewhere around 30 billion to 100 billion of these cells in your neocortex. Um, and uh, we want to understand how they work together. Um, if you take a, we, we actually today have a fairly good idea about how these cells work, I mean, what their properties are, how their ion channels work, how they grow, and how they die, and all kinds of wonderful stuff like that. Um, so it's fairly well understood. We have good models of these cells. However, 
um, in the real brain, we find the cells on their own don't do much. You can eliminate any cell and it doesn't really matter. It's the collection of cells that matter. It's, it's, it's ensembles of cells that matter, cells working together. Here's another picture from Cajal. Um, and uh, back, this is over 100 years ago he made these pictures, but they're still quite good. Uh, in this picture, you see a, a quite a few cells in it. This is still a very small percent of the cells that you might find in a region like this. This is a, about a two-millimeter-high two, two view of the cells in a slice of the neocortex. And already you see some things propping up here. When we see these cells in, in groups, we see that they're, they're sort of grouped in layers. Cajal labeled these with numbers on the side there. You can see the layers are different by the type of cell types, about the dendritics, arborizations, where they project, and so on. And there's a, so there's this layer effect, and there's also a vertical sort of commular effect you can see in this picture as well. So our goal is to try to figure out um, how those cells work and make you smart. Now, I'm gonna, I didn't say this already, but I'll say it right now. The brain is a very complex organ. It has many different components to it. My interest is the neocortex. The neocortex is about 60% of the volume of your brain. Um, it's, uh, it's the big wrinkly thing on top. You know, it sort of surrounds the rest of the brain. It's like a, a sheath. It's a thin sheet of cells. Uh, it's like two millimeters thick. Um, and it's the locus of what you might call all high-level intelligence. All high-level vision is in the neocortex. Language, whether it's spoken language, written language, um, the mathematics and, and physics and so on. My neocortex is generating my speech right now, and your neocortex is understanding it. The other parts of the brain are important, uh, and they interact with the neocortex in various ways, but my goal is really just to understand how the neocortex itself works, and we're going to focus our, our comments on that today. Okay, so what we want to do is figure out, uh, you know, why do cells have all these synapses on them? which is kind of a mystery, and I'm going to give a, propose an explanation today, and how do they work in groups like this? What, what is the information processing going on in here? All right, so let's go to that. Here's the agenda for my talk. I'm going to talk about the neocortex as a predictive modeling system. I'm then going to talk about three attributes of, of the neocortex that in my work, in my company, we've, we, three years ago we had a real sort of breakthrough in understanding these attributes, and so I'm going to focus on them today. One is the way the brain represents information, which is sparse distributed representations. The second thing is how it learns sequences of those patterns. I'm going to argue that sequence memory is the primary memory in your neocortex. And then finally, I'm going to talk about how the online learning, or how do we learn continuously, how, the, how is memory formed uh, in online learning. All right, so let's just jump right into it. Um, the neocortex is a predictive modeling system. So here you see a picture of a neocortex. Maybe you can't imagine that little line drawing there. Um, and what it does is receives inputs from your senses. Now, we think of the three primary senses as vision, hearing, and touch. There's many more. In fact, vision itself is more than one sense. But we think of these as three primary senses. The first thing you have to know is that they're not singular senses. The vision, the, the retina, is really like a million senses. There's a million fibers on your optic nerve going from the, the retina to the neocortex. It's not like a picture. It's actually a million separate little sensors that are arrayed topologically. The same thing with your body or somatic senses. There's an array of sensors on your body that's about another million fibers coming into your brain. And your cochlea produces about 30,000, uh, again, individual uh, nerve fibers coming into the brain. So you have this massive multi-million bundle of nerves activations coming to your brain, and they're changing very rapidly. That's what we mean by high velocity. They're changing in the order of milliseconds, tens of milliseconds, and hundreds of milliseconds. It's like a fire hose of millions of fibers flipping on and off constantly. And this is what the brain works with. This is it. Once, once those patterns enter the brain, they're no longer light, sound, and touch. It, it doesn't exist inside the brain. It's just patterns of activity. And the brain has to build a model of the world from those patterns. And you start this at birth. When you're born, 
you have the structure of the neocortex, but it doesn't know anything. It doesn't know about Berkeley or universities or chandeliers or lecterns or computers or water cups or toothbrushes or cars, anything. It has to learn everything in the world. It has to learn what your environment's like, and it has to build this model of the world. The amount of things it learns is amazing. You're not even aware of all the things you know. Uh, and it, it has to build this from this stream of data. One thing we can say, once it's built this model of the world, and new patterns come in, it recognizes those patterns, and it does a few things. One is it makes predictions. And I wrote extensively about this in my book on intelligence, that the brain is constantly making predictions. You're not aware of most of them. You're constantly predicting what you're going to see, what you're going to feel, what you're going to hear. If I do a simple gesture, just like putting my hand on this lectern, and I've never done this in this exact spot before, as my hand comes down, my brain has expectations. If my hand went too far and passed an inch through this lectern, it would say, whoa, something's wrong. If it felt like water or cold or metal or jello, it would all say something's wrong. Um, and, and you're not even thinking about this, but your brain is constantly making expectations. You're predicting what I'm going to say. You may not be able to predict the exact words. Sometimes you can, like what is the word at the end of this sentence. But other times it's just you're predicting attributes. But if something is wrong, you know it. And so part of prediction is also detecting anomalies in the world. So we know that the brain is detecting anomalies as well. And finally, everywhere you look in the neocortex, it's generating actions. So again, as I said earlier, my neocortex is speaking right now. And it, it's, it's controlling the high-level actions. So other parts of the brain are also doing behavior, but the neocortex is doing all sort of high-level behavior. Okay, so this is what we want to do. We have this high-velocity data stream building a model. Now, if I were to tell you the three top attributes, my top three attributes explaining the principles of how the neocortex works, these are them, starting with number one. It's a hierarchy. It's a, it's, although it looks like a sheet of cells, it's connected in a way that it's literally like a, a hierarchy of regions. And... Uh, this has been well-known for a long period of time here. Information flows into regions at the bottom of the hierarchy. This is a caricature drawing. This is not a picture of a real hierarchy in a brain. Um, it goes into the bottom of this hierarchy, and it flows up, and it also flows back down. It converges as it goes up, and it diverges as it comes down. We also know that these regions in the hierarchy are, are very, very similar. They look the same, and it is believed, and we act as if they are the same. They're actually doing basically the same thing. There's variations on a theme here. But the regions at different points in the hierarchy, ones that are connecting the vision and touch and hearing, are actually all doing the same thing. They're all doing the same sort of information processing. There's tremendous evidence to support this. This was first proposed in 1979 by Vernon Mountcastle. So we have a hierarchy of cortical regions that are all doing the same thing. And if they're all doing the same thing, and the whole thing does prediction, model building, prediction, anomaly detection, and motor behavior, then every region is doing those things. It's building a model of its world. It's making predictions, detecting anomalies, and generating behavior. So that makes our job a little bit easier. Here's a picture of what a real hierarchy looks like in the brain. This is a famous, all the neuroscientists in the room will know this picture immediately. This is from Felman and Vanessen, and it shows in the macaque monkey some of the regions in the visual cortex. We don't need to study this in detail. There's little colored boxes of different regions in the neocortex, and you can see there's quite a few layers of them, quite a few of these guys, and they're all hooked together, different species of different hierarchies. We don't really know what the humans look like, but it's probably something similar to this. We're not going to go into more detail here, but this hierarchy is a fairly complex thing, and it's real. Okay, the second principle here that I argue is that the primary memory function which is going on, and the cortex is a memory system, is uh, sequence memory. Now, I want you to think about this. It may not be obvious to you, but when you are trying to understand the world, for example, you're trying to understand my speech, the patterns are coming in time. It's like you're listening to a melody. The order in which the patterns occur, rapidly changing order, rapid changing patterns is important. It's a sequence of patterns. 
The same is true when I touch things. And the same is true of my eyes. I'm constantly moving my eyes in the world, and there's a, there's a pattern, a sequence coming in. For you to understand or infer on the world, you have to have a memory of sequences. Similarly, if I'm going to make predictions, I have to have a memory of what follows next. You know, what follows this? What is typically after this? And that's a sequence memory. If I'm going to generate motor behavior, think about what happens to my, for me to create this speech right now. I am creating a very fast temporal pattern on dozens of muscles in my voice box that are going in this complex pattern. I am not making this up. I've said these words before. I've said sentences like this before. I'm doing little variations on a theme here and there. But basically, I'm playing back uh, sequence memory, a very complex sequences. And we do this in all our behavior. Sequence memory is key to understanding inference and prediction. And I believe this is the key to understanding how the hierarchy works. In fact, the idea basically is in the hierarchy is you learn sequences of sequences and sequences. You go up the hierarchy, you, you build stability. Okay, the third component here is the way the brain represents information. Sparse distributed representations. Uh, it's been known for a long time that when you look in the brain, you find that at any point in time, most of the cells are relatively quiet, and a few of the cells are very, relatively active. Uh, it's sparse. That's what we mean by sparse. It's, it's few act very few things are very active. Most things are quiet, and there's a lot of inhibition that's making this happen. Um, it's been, you know, uh, Bruno Olshausen, I mentioned earlier, he, he wrote one of the seminal papers on sparse coding in the visual system, looking at it from an efficiency point of view. But only recently did I fully understand some of the attributes of sparse distributed representations, and we're going to talk about them. So everywhere you look in the brain, even coming out of the, out of the senses, you see sparse activity between regions, within regions, everywhere you go, it's sparse. And this is not an accident. There are some properties of sparse representations which are essential for building intelligence, and I'm going to talk about them. Okay, so those, I'm going to now go in, in detail on two of these items. I'm not going to talk further about hierarchy. I'm going to talk about sparse distributed representations, and I'm talking about sequence memory. And we're going to talk about how groups of cells can learn sequences of sparse distributed representations. So now I'm going to switch into a little bit more like a computer scientist mode of thinking here when we talk about sparse distributed representations. And I'm going to first tell you about how representations are used, formed in a computer and then contrast that to sparse representations in the brain. So in a computer, we typically use something called dense representations. Um, you might think of this, we have a few number of bits, maybe eight, like in a byte, or 128 bits, or 64 bits, something like that. We use all the combinations of ones and zeros. So if I have eight bits, I can use all from 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, into 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, and everything in between, it's all valid. The individual uh, bits don't mean anything. Here's an, uh, start with an example, the ASCII code. Um, ASCII code is an 8-bit code for, no, for, for letters, and so the letter M is represented by 0, 1, 1, 1, 0, 1, 1, 0, 1. However, if I say to you, what, is the, what do those bits mean in an ASCII code? What does the third bit in that, that code mean something? It doesn't mean anything. It says I have to look at the whole thing. There's nothing about that representation which tells me what it is. There's nothing about those bits that say M. It's just an arbitrary assignment. The bits themselves have to be looked at as a group, and some programmer decided one time that that should be an M, and, we're gonna, and the computer knows nothing about that. Uh, now, these representations are assigned. They're not learned. They're just made up in some sense, and that's a great way of working on computers. In the brain, we don't have that. We have sparse distributed representations. Let me just tell you what they are. First of all, you have thousands of bits. Now, when I say bits, you can think of cells, okay? So when I'm talking about bits, it's the same as cells. When I say well, there's a few active bits, I mean there's a few active cells. So I might have thousands of cells or thousands of bits. You need to have a large number. We typically work with 2,000 bits in my work at uh, Nementa. And there are mostly zeros and a few ones. We will typically use 2% uh, 
um, uh, activation. So we'll have 41 bits and 1,960 zero bits. And so this is a sparse representation. I show you an example there, just showing a bunch of zeros going off to the distance here. Now, the difference here in the brain is that each bit has some sort of semantic meaning. Each bit has some meaning on its own. You, you just, it's not like this is an arbitrary bit in, or an arbitrary cell. One moment it means this, and something a moment it means something else. They have some sort of semantic meaning. We may not be able to figure that out very easily, but there's some sort of semantic meaning. And what we do is we pick the top bits, the top semantic meanings for a representation. And it's become clearer. But let me give you an example. Uh, this is a, a, a made-up example for, uh, for analogy. It's not the way we would do it. It's not the way it's done in the brain. But let's say I wanted to represent a letter like the letter M in a sparse distributed representation. I would come up with 2,000 attributes. I might have attributes for this is a vowel or this is a consonant. I might have attributes for where in the alphabet this letter is. I might have attributes for what it sounds like. Is it O sound or E sound? Is it a hard sound or a soft sound? Is it a fricative sound? I might have attributes how it's drawn. Is it drawn with descenders or ascenders? Is it a closed shape or an open shape? And so on. And then when I wanted to represent a letter, I would pick the 40 attributes that best represent that letter. And therefore, the meaning of the letter, the meaning of the thing is actually incorporated in the encoding itself. And, um, and that's a really great thing to start. Now, we're going to have to learn these meanings. The brain doesn't know these bit meanings. doesn't know what the cells represent when you're born. It has to learn them. But the basic idea is, is as I said, now, there's some great properties that come with sparse distributed representations, and I'm going to go through those. This is pretty key to understanding everything else that's going on. Uh, let's start with the simplest one. Let's say if I wanted to take two sparse distributed representations and say if they're similar. I could just basically line them up and say if they have similar bits, one bits in the same locations, they have semantic similarity. If they don't, they're semantically different. And I can say, well, if I have 41 bits, I can be anywhere between no overlap and 40 bits overlap. But I can easily compare them, and wherever I have a one bit in common, it's semantically similar. The second thing is, that what if I wanted to store one of these patterns and recognize it later? We're going to, certainly going to want to do that in the brain. We want to say, oh, I've seen this before. What is it? How would I go about that? In a computer, we might save all 2,000 bits. But here, we're not going to do that. We're going to say, look, let's just save the locations of the, t the 40 bits that are one. And we would say, in a computer language, we would say we'd store the indices of the ones. So I'd have a, a list of 40 indices saying, okay, what locations are the one bits? And now if a new pattern comes in, I'll say, hey, do I have ones in those same locations? If I find those ones in the same location, I know I have the whole, bit, the whole pattern. I don't have to look at all the bits. I only have to look at the ones that were one before and know where they are. That's, that's going to work very well. But what if I came along to you and I said, okay, we have a problem. We can't store the location of all 40 bits, all 41 bits. We can only store 10 randomly. You can pick 10 randomly, but that's it. And so we now have 10 indices. We call this subsampling. And you say, well, will that work? If I, if I see um, those 10, I have those 10 indices, a new pattern comes in. I say, is this the one I saw before? Is this the one I saved? And I'll go down and say, look, the 10 ones are in the right locations. And I say, that's good. And you might say, well, that's not good. I could be wrong. Maybe I got 10 of them right, but the other 30 are wrong. Well, that could happen. It's very, very unlikely to happen. But even if it did happen, what, what does it mean? It means I am now made a mistake, but the mistake is for something semantically similar to the thing I stored originally. It's, even though I didn't get, save all the bits correctly, and maybe a few of them are wrong, basically I have a very semantic similarity to the thing I stored before, and that's good enough. And we're going to take advantage of this, because we're going to be, these are actually going to be connections in the brain. We don't have to connect to everything. We only have to connect to a small number to be pretty certain we got the right pattern. Now, the final property here is one of union. 
Um, imagine I took 10 sparse distributed representations, 10 2,000-bit patterns, and I ordered them together. So wherever there's a bit, I add it up with a bit. So I have 10 of these guys. Each has 40 bits on or 2% activity. And I create a new one, which is 2,000 bits, which has about, uh, about 20% uh, of the bits on. I just order them together. This is a one-way operation. I can't undo it. I can't say, oh, given this union, tell me what the individual bits were, uh, individual patterns. I can't do that. But I can do something very interesting, almost as good. I can say, here's a new sparse distributed representation. Is it one of the original 10? So given the union and a new one, is it one of the original 10? And the answer is, I can do that. I can do it very reliably. All I have to do is say, are the ones in the new bit in the, in the ones in the, other, in the union? And if they are, then that's good. You might say, well, that could be an error. If you're following this, you might say, well, look, I could get maybe matching up one bit from one of those 10 and another bit from another of those 10 and so on. This is astronomically unlikely to happen. A little bit of math shows you that. And so this is a good thing. Why do we want to care about this? I said earlier the brain makes predictions. What the brain does is actually it's predicting lots of things all the time. It's not predicting one thing. It's predicting many things. And the way it makes the predictions, we're going to see, is it makes a, a, a sort of a union of predictions. And we want to know if something unexpected happens, we have to say, hey, what actually happened? Was it one of the predictions or was it not one of the predictions? So I can't always tell you what my predictions are, but I can tell you if the thing that happened wasn't correct. All right, so those are our properties. If you're going to forget everything else I talk about today and tomorrow, and you want to know, remember one thing from my talk, we can remember this, and I'll state this right very clearly, I'm certain of this, that all intelligent machines, biological or otherwise, are going to be based on sparse representations. These properties are critical, and they solve some very fundamental problems that have been bothering people for a long time. So sparse distributed representations is the language of the brain, and that's what we want to, we want to do that. Okay, so now we're going to do the next step here. We're going to talk about sequence memory. Um, I already I argued why it's important, um, but I need to, I'm going to tell you how we learn sequences of these sparse distributed representations. So let's just jump right into it here. We're going to do, we're going to do a little bit more neuroscience. Here's a picture of our brain again, a very light picture of our brain. We're going to zoom in on a little section of the neocortex. Hopefully you can see that better. There's a picture of a little slice of the neocortex. There you can see these layers going left to right. Those are layers of cells. And you can also, if you were close to this, you could see there's sort of a vertical orientation of columns in there as well. We're going to zoom in one of those layers and look at a little caricature drawing that I've made here. Um, those little circles represent cells in the brain. I'm just making it so for illustrative purposes. And there's, when you look at a little section of a layer of cells in your cortex, you see two principles. Uh, one principle is that, the, it, represented by the green arrow, is that there's a column of structure. The cells that are vertically aligned in a very skinny column tend to have the same feed-forward response properties. They tend to behave the same way. Very few connections, actually, vertically, so, but, but there's, a, there's a vertical thing. So if I give an input to the brain, those cells all have a similar feed-forward response property. The orange thing, the orange arrow basically represents where most of the connections occur. 95% of the connections are to cells and columns nearby. So we have, a very, we have a very vertical orientation in terms of performance. All these cells in the column are doing the same thing, roughly, and then we have most of the connections are horizontal. If I now zoom in on one of those cells, um, this is that little picture of the neuron I showed you earlier, so we don't have to go through that again, but now I'm going to zoom in on one of the dendrites. And this is a picture of, of uh, a real dendrite on a neuron. And if you can, I'll try to walk you through it. It's a little section. It's only probably in that picture maybe 40 microns wide or something like that. And you can see there's a branch going on in there. And you can see the actual synapses, the actual spines where the synapses connect. Those are the little appendages going up and down. They're really packed in about one micron apart. 
Now, these, the, these spines are all over, these synapses are all over the dendritic tree. We've learned something in recent years, which is very important, that, when, uh, that these, these dendritic regions, if I could take a little section of a dendrite, it acts in a very unusual way. Um, when you have a bunch of synapses active at the same time, if I have one synapse active, it has almost no effect on the cell body. But if I have 10 or 20 of them active at the same time in the same location, it has a very large effect on the cell body. It's as if they're like a coincidence detector. It's like I have a whole bunch of patterns coming in at once. It says, oh, that's a whole group at once. That's good. If I only have some of them or a few of them, it doesn't do that. And so this is uh, something that's uh, a very important, important property, and we're going to need to exploit that in our, in our model here. Um, just to give a little bit more flavor for that, since this is the neuroscience talk, so there's a little bit depth, and if it, I hope I don't lose too many of you here. Um, if I look at that neuron carefully, we can actually make a distinguish uh, between two types of dendrites. There's the ones that are very close to the cell body. These are called proximal dendrites. And if I have an input there, it has a linear effect on the cell, meaning it, you know, like I, if I have one spike come in and the, the cell gets depolarized a little bit, if I have two, it's twice as much, and three, and so on. So it's a linear summation. And this is where we find most of the feed-forward connections to the cell occurring. Then there are the distal syn, uh, dendrites. These are the ones that are further away from the cell body, and they work, like I just said a little moment ago. There are dozens of these regions. They're nonlinear summation. They act sort of like coincidence detectors. And this is where we find, primarily find connections to other cells nearby. And uh, these, are, these are important properties for us. We are going to model this with a model neuron. Um, and this is a fairly sophisticated model neuron. This is a picture of the neurons we use at Nementa. And it basically models exactly what I just said there on the left. You have a cell body, which is that little square. We have the green dots are representing the proximal uh, synapses. And then the blue guys arranged on those little dendritic segments are representing the distal uh, uh, synapses. And we align them as a series of dendritic segments, not in a branch like we see in the brain, but in an array like that. And it has the same properties. So we're going to build now, we're going to build networks of these guys, and we're going to learn how to form sparsity of representations and learn sequences of them. So let's come back to this picture. We are now going to take that model neuron I just told you about, and we're going to arrange them in a layer of cells. And in this picture here in the center bottom, we're showing a lot of little rectangles, a lot of little cubes. Each one of those is one of our model neurons, if you will. And I'm showing them in, in an array like we'd find in, in the brain and a, a, a columns that are only four cells high in this particular case. And the colors of those cells are their activation states, which I'll talk about in a moment. Okay, so we want to understand is how does this structure, using those neurons, form sparse representations, and how does it learn sequences? And how does it make predictions? And how does it detect anomalies? And so on. Which is, I think, is what basically is going on in neural structure. Okay, so let's now zoom in on a layer of cells. You can think of this like the layer of bits in our sparse distributed representation, but this is a two-dimensional layer of cells here. Each one of those cells is what I'm showing down here. And we have some feed-forward input coming from a sense or from another region in the brain going into this area. And, each of the, and that feed-forward input is going on the proximal dendrites, or proximal synapses, if you will. And what we're showing in the colorization here, this is one of our simulations, the colorization here is representing the level of input activity that it's getting. It's not the firing rate of the cell. It's just the depolarization of the cell, how much input it's getting. Some are getting more, and some are getting less. They're, they're, they're sampling from the input space. Um, and the ones that get the most fire first, and they inhibit the other guys. And so this little yellow thing is basically an inhibitory field, and basically the guys who get the most activity are the ones who inhibit everybody else. And what we have now is we have a sparse distributed representation of, uh, of our input space. I won't go through how that is learned and how it exactly works, because I want to get to the sequence memory. But this is how we ended up with this, this pattern. 
So here we have our array of cells. This is just like our zeros and ones. The white cells are zeros, and the, and the red cells are one. Those are the active ones. I'm not showing you 2,000 columns here. About a quarter of that, just to make it look visible. But you can see I have a sparse activation here. Now, over time, the patterns and in input change. This is time one, and okay, so here's time two. So imagine now, as I'm speaking, as you're doing things, these patterns are changing constantly in these cells. Some cells are becoming active, and a moment later, other cells are becoming active as the patterns in the world change. And this is a sequence, and we want to learn the sequence. We want to learn, like, well, at this point, how do I predict what's going to happen next? And we do that on a cell-by-cell -cell basis. And here's how. When a cell becomes active, it says, who is active recently nearby? Because if they were active recently nearby, and I see them again, I'm going to predict my own activity. So a cell will come along and say, look, I just became active. Let me look around and sample from the people who are nearby who was active just a moment ago. And we're going to form connections to that. And we're going to do that on our distal dendrites down here. So this is like a coincidence detector. This is like our index of 10 patterns. We are going to basically say, I'm going to try to recognize the previous state by forming connections to it. And if I see that, I will become in a predictive state. I'll predict my own activity. So if I see this, I'll predict my own activity. Every cell is doing this all the time. And so when a new pattern comes in, you, the, we have all these yellow states, these cells in a predictive state. They're all saying, hey, I might become active next. I might become active next. Now, in this case, there's more yellow cells in predictive states than there are uh, the red ones. And that's because imagine I had some patterns. I had A followed by B, or I had A followed by C, or I had A followed by D. And if I show you A, it's going to predict B, C, and D. It's a union of those things. So that's what you're basically seeing happening going on here. And this is the, is the basics of a, of a transition memory or beginning of a sequence memory because I'm learning how one state goes to another state. As I've shown it here, it has a, a major flaw. It's what we call a first-order memory, meaning it only can go back one step in time. And, and that means I can't, I can't use information that occurred a long time ago. All I can use is what happened earlier. But let's say my patterns were X, A, B, or X, A, C, excuse me, Y, A, C, or Z, A, D. If I could go back two steps and say, oh, it's X followed by A, then I can predict it's B. If it was Y followed by A, I could predict it's C. And that would be a second order memory. We want a system that can go arbitrarily long sequences, long, very long melodies, if you will. Um, and this system isn't going to do that. So the way we're going to solve that problem is we're going to add cells in a column. Essentially, we're going to use the columns and multiple cells to column to solve this problem. And let me show you how it's done. Variable order sequence memory. Let's start with our zeros and ones, our representation of a sparse distributed representation. And I'm now going to assign, instead of each of these bits being a one, I'm going to make it a column of cells. So I now have 10 cells above it. So each column is now one of my ones or zeros. And I'm going to pick one of those are supposed to be little circles above the ones and zeros. I don't know if it looks like that to you. But anyway, I have 10 cells, and I'm just going to pick for every one bit, every column that's active, I'm going to pick one cell and say, that's the one that's on. And I'm going to pick that for another one bit and another one bit, and I made an arbitrary assignment like this. I can now do the same thing again in a different representation. Here's the same representation, the same ones and zeros, but I'm going to pick a different set of cells in that column. Now think about this. I have the same input, but I'm representing it in two different ways. At the same time, I can say they're the same input because they're the same columns, but at the, same, at the, other time, at the other hand, I can say they're different because they use different cells. And even though some of the cells might be the same, 9 out of 10 will be different, and that's good enough. Think of it another way. If I have 40 active columns, or 40 bits that are one, and I have 10 cells per column, there are 10 to the 40th ways to represent the same input. 
I have 10 to the 40th ways of representing an A, or 10 to the 40th ways of representing a, a, a pattern, or a, a note in a melody, if you will. Um, and I'll say a sentence here. I'm going to use the, word, use the sound two in multiple ways. I'm going to say there are too many two twos to count. Right? Well, I use the same sound coming into your head over and over again, the two sound. But in context, your brain has to represent them differently because it, 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 it hears them as differently, it perceives them as differently. And there has to be a way of doing that. And I propose that the columnar structure like this is a perfect way of doing this. Um, and it represents, a, a, gives us a huge capacity. So now we can go back and we do, I'm not going to walk you through all the details of this, but if I do the same thing in a, in a columnar array of uh, a layer of cells, and a cell now makes connections to other cells in this larger assemblage here, we basically are going to build a high, um, a, a high uh, capacity sequence memory. Every cell is going to be predicting its next state, and when they do that, we can follow these and make predictions and go through time. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit more flavor on it, a little bit deeper, so you can, if it gets hard, you can just, I'll come back to you in a second here, something easier. Um, part of this theory is that when, when, a, when a column is predicted or not predicted, it behaves differently. So if it wasn't predicted and a new input comes along and that column is selective, it fires all the cells. It's like, I, I don't know which cell is supposed to be active right now. It's like, I'm going to burst them all, they'll all become active. And this is a way, like, you can say to say, who unexpected thing happened. Or um, uh, it allows you to pick up a melody in the middle of the melody, something like that. If, if you had good predictions and you knew exactly what you're tracking and you knew exactly where you're going and everything was working just like you expected, then you'd only have activations of one cell per column. We see this kind of thing when unexpected things happen in the brain. You see a lot more activity going on. Um, and so uh, this, this picture here, I'm going to show you. There's three columns I'm going to highlight here. Uh, two of them, the two on the left, have one cell predicted, that's the yellow state, and the one on the right, which is a little harder to see, has no cells predicted. And if all those columns become active in the next state, then you'll see the one on the right, it, all the cells in the column become active, and the one on the left, only one cell become active. So we can detect anomalies on a, on a, sort of, on a column by column basis. It's sort of an attribute by attribute basis. Okay, so you put all this together in ways that uh, you can read about if you want, and you end up with a very uh, powerful sequence memory. It's a variable order sequence memory. You can learn, it can learn very complex long temporal patterns. Um, it makes multiple simultaneous predictions. It can detect when what actually happens is correct or not correct, and it can tell you why and why not. It is a high capacity memory. I'm not going to prove that to you here or demonstrate it today, but trust me that you can, a simple memory of just 2,000 columns can learn millions of transitions. It is a very high capacity system, um, and it's very kind of difficult to max it out. It's distributed. Think about this. There's not a single point of failure in this system. I can eliminate columns. I can eliminate cells. I can eliminate dendrites. I can eliminate multiple ones of those things. And it keeps on working. Uh, it degrades gracefully all the way down because of the, all the properties involved here. And finally, it does semantic generalization. What do I mean by that? Let's say I have a series of patterns coming in. And remember, these bits have semantic meaning. They're learned, but they have semantic meaning. And I learned some sequence of these patterns. And now I give you a new pattern. And it's the same sequence, but actually um, it's different elements. They're slightly different. Different numbers of, uh, some, of the, some of the bits are different. Some of the columns are different. It'll be able to say, you know what? These are different patterns, but I recognize the sequence. I recognize there are different spatial patterns coming in, different notes, if you will, but I recognize it's the, it's the same basic melody. And I will make predictions based on previous knowledge on a different environment. And so it generalizes uh, in, a, in a semantic way, which is a very desirable attribute. Okay, if I were, now I'm going to, the third attribute I was going to talk about as part of this theory is the requirements for online learning. Now, think about what does online learning mean? It means that 
when data is coming into the brain, you don't get to store it. You know, when we think about computers, we bring data into a database and then we look at it. But here, the brain doesn't do that. The brain, it comes in and it has to learn right away. It has no chance to store the sensory data coming from your senses. It's like, I need to infer, I need to make predictions, and I need to learn all in one fell swept, uh, sweep. So online learning is the concept of that you're continuously learning. That's the machine learning term for that. So it's pretty simple, actually. We have to, essentially, you have to train on all the time. All new inputs have to be trained. It might be noise. It might be some thing you're never going to see again. You still have to train because it might be something you're going to see again if it's, if it's a novel thing. And so essentially, if a pattern does not repeat, then we're going to forget it. And if a pattern does repeat, then we want to strengthen it and remember it. We model this in a, in a way uh, similar to uh, 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 our interpretation of what's going on in the biology. Let me just walk you through. Here's our model, again, of a layer of cells. There's our model of our neuron. And then over on the right is our picture of the dendritic and the spines on it. The one thing we've learned over the years, it used to be believed that learning only occurred in the strengthening and weakening of synapses. In fact, many people still, dis they say that as a wrote. But we've learned that synapses can form very rapidly. That I can have an axon and a dendrite that are near each other, and there's no synapse. But if they both fire at the same time, that a, a new synapse can grow very rapidly in a matter of minutes or a minute or so. I mean, you can watch movies of this stuff on YouTube. It's pretty amazing. So, so these, these synapses can grow and ungrow. It's, and so instead of just increasing the weight or decreasing the weight, we can grow new synapses. This is a much more powerful concept. And so we've adapted that in our models. Here's how we do it. We consider there's two things about a synapse, a connection between two nerve cells. There is the growth of it and then whether it's connected. Whether it's connected, the weight, if you will, we make it binary. I'm not saying it's binary in the brain, but it's good enough for what we need to do. So it's either connected or it's not connected. But however, it can grow on a scalar, meaning I can be from no growth to a little bit of growth. And at some point, once it gets above a certain threshold, we say it's connected. And if I continue increasing this, what we call the permanence, it just gets stronger and stronger. It's harder and harder for it to forget. So by training over and over again, it's not like making the synapse stronger as much as it's making it harder to forget this thing. And there's a lot of this. We didn't make this up. There's a lot of evidence for this. I read a paper once where someone suggested this idea, and we've adopted it. Okay. So that's basically the, the, the system we've come up with. When we simulate this stuff in our, in our, uh, in our work, we uh, typically, as I said, we had like 2,000 columns. We typically use about 30 cells per column. Each cell has about 128 dendritic segments. Each dendritic segment can have up to 40 synapses on them. These are numbers that are right in the range of realism, realism on, on real neurons. And what you end up with then is you've got you know, 2,000 columns in one of our simulations, 60,000 neurons, 5,000 synapses per neuron, and about 300 million synapses total. This would be equivalent to a very small section of the neurocortex, but it turns out is a very robust and powerful tool for discovering patterns in complex data streams. Um, and uh, we, we, build, we build hundreds of these models every day at my, in my office um, because we're in a production system, so they really work. Okay, so now I want to basically sort of go back to where we started from and say, well, we're trying to find a broad framework of ideas in which to interpret the neuroscience um, uh, empirical data. And the question is, how good are we doing on this? Um, and, you know, we have a long way to go, but I'm also pretty happy with how far we've gone so far. So here's some of the, here's some of the things that I didn't know 30 years ago. Maybe someone else knew them, but I didn't know them. We now know that the neocortex builds a predictive model of the world. It's a memory system. It's not a computer. And that system must be trained. Uh, in my book, I call this the memory prediction framework. So for those who follow the work, our work, I use that term to describe this. It's basically saying, hey, we have a memory system, and, it's, and it makes predictions. 
The second thing is we know that there's a hierarchy of regions. Um, and that in those hierarchy of regions, I speculate that it's sequence memory. Uh, and, and with that sequence memory, we can do inference or pattern recognition, prediction, anomaly detection, and motor generation. There's a lot of things we don't know about this yet. But I'm arguing that's the basic principle of what's going on in each layer in each region of the hierarchy. Um, we call that hierarchical temporal memory because it's basically describing the hierarchy of mem temporal memory regions. And then finally, this is the work I described today, which is really recent, ha happened in the last three years, where I'm arguing that each layer of cells in a region is a sequence memory. So we've got maybe five layers of cells in a typical region of cortex. Each one is learning some type of sequence for various reasons, feed forward, feed back, motor control, and so on. It's based on sparse distributed representations. We now have a, a, a much better idea of what sparse distributed representations are about. It explains why there's columns and why, how, how those columns are representing the feed forward data. There's a lot of uh, uh, physical, biophysical, uh, excuse me, psychophysical, not psychophysics, um, physiological data which, which matches with this. It explains how cells in a column can represent the feed-forward data in different contexts. It gives a, for the first time that I'm aware of, we have a model of why cells have so many, have nonlinear dendrites and have this, so many uh, synapses on them, and why they're distributed the way they are, and why they grow the way they are. Um, and it, whether it's, you know, whether you, I, I'm pretty confident these ideas are basically correct. Um, but if nothing else, they work, and they're really cool, and they do a lot of things we've been trying to do, and they solve a lot of constraints. We call that the cortical learning algorithm because it's basically saying, hey, we think it's the basic learning mechanism that's going on between groups of cells in distributed memory formations. Uh, and we're pretty excited about that. OK, we have a long way to go. But this actually, uh, in my mind, it may seem like not much for 30 years. But this is actually pretty good. I'm really happy with this. And um, I'm going to tell you about tomorrow how we actually build this stuff and how we are applying at the problems, and uh, some of the, you know, where, how do we turn this into like really intelligent machines? Uh, there's a long way to go there, but this is enough to get started. And that's what we're trying to do. I want to end here with just a couple of pictures. This is a picture of the, the Redwood Neuroscience Institute on the last day before it became the Redwood Center for Theoretical Neuroscience. There's Bruno and myself, and there's Tony Bell and a few other people. And there's the people at uh, Nementa now. Obviously, all this work is team effort. Uh, nothing is done individually. And these are the people I've worked with over the years. So that's it. Thank you very much. Question. Uh, where do the patterns get their representational capacity? Uh, that is, I like the example of the different senses of the word two, uh, the infinitive, the numeral. Uh, and of course, there must be something corresponding in the brain to that. And uh, uh, what the picture will show us there is a set of patterns of neurons. Now, what fact about the patterns makes them represent uh, different meanings of the word two? All right. So uh, I, the question, I'm going to repeat that because everyone didn't hear it, uh, or at least I get to interpret it the way I want, so I get to answer the question that I want to answer, um, which is. Uh, how, does it, how do we learn, how do those representations of those bits, how do they come about? Where do those different representations come from? The semantic meaning of those bits. What makes them represent? What makes them represent? Well, first of all, you have to realize, starting right at the senses, they have, they have semantic meaning. Leaving, right coming off the retina or coming off the cochlea, they have semantic meaning. It may not be the kind of meaning you think of semantic meaning, but I can say, oh, this ganglion cell in the cochlea represents uh, a, a, a range of frequencies in the sound pattern. And this one coming off the retina means I have an edge of uh, 
uh, I have a certain sort of on-off pattern in this particular point of my visual space. These are sort of small semantic meanings, but they're there from the beginning. And what happens in the hierarchy, and we understand this mostly, but not 100%, what happens in the hierarchy is you, is you, take, multi, you take a whole bunch of uh, uh, converging sparse representations, and you run it through that first um, activity I told you there where, where you project to the proximal synapses. What it does is it forms uh, new representations that are combinations of the old ones. And it forms the, the representations that are most common. So when we did this in the visual system, and I didn't show this, we would end up, I would take like bit patterns from a retina, and we'd end up forming uh, the kind of patterns you see in V1, which are line orientation segments or different types of patterns you'd see in the world. And we tested this in various ways. And so now you have a little bit more sophisticated um, uh, representation of a bit. Then we learn sequences of those. So what we now, when we learn sequences of those representations, now we, have, now we have cells that are essentially saying, okay, this is this spatial feature um, in, in, in a sequence, and it's a lot of like uh, the sort of complex cells in V1, where you say, okay, it, it's anything in this movement in this direction. And you do this over and over again in the hierarchy, and as you go up the hierarchy, you find more and more complex uh, patterns. A lot of people have been working on this idea for many years in vision, uh, but I think what they've really missed in a, in, a, in, a, in a strong way is how to use time and sequence memory in addition to this combining of bits. So you have this, you have this, this forming new spatial patterns that are the common patterns, form sequences of those and new ones of those. And honestly, I can't say I understand it all. But I, I, in the end, that's how it has to come out of that. Uh, and we've been able to exhibit up to a certain level. So perhaps not to fully um, um, uh, answer you'd like, but it's the best I can give today. Yes, it's next, next gentleman. Have you gained any insight into the purpose of sleep and, for instance, why prolonged absence of sleep distorts the mechanism of the brain and sensory processing? Yeah. You know, sleep is, a, is another one of those areas which is a huge amount of literature on. It is known very clearly that uh, sleep is necessary to live. Um, sleep deprived people eventually die. It's also known to, to uh, consolidate memories. There's a whole interplay that I didn't talk about at all here between the hippocampus and the cortex. And the hippocampus is the location of uh, episodic memories, things you, you learn very quickly. And, um, and if you lose your hippocampus, you won't form any new memories of the certain types. And, um, and it's believed that sleep has a way of taking those, uh, some of the things that are stored uh, in, like, in the hippocampus and retraining them into the cortex. Um, I, we don't model that. We don't try to. Um, I don't, it, until I find a need for it, I'm not going to do that. Now, we're not trying to emulate humans. We actually, in this system I showed you here, we have no concept of episodic memory. Uh, we think we can add that if we wanted to, but there's no need to at the moment. And uh, we're able to learn these things uh, without remembering exact details of stuff. Um, so the short answer is no, we're not modeling. We have some ideas uh, how we would, and uh, we didn't gain any insights why humans need to do that. All right, thank you again. I'm going to be around here for a few minutes for those who want to talk to me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.